Gilbert reached across the aisle, picked up the end of Anne's long red braid, held it out at arm's length, and said in a piercing whisper, Carrots! Carrots! Then Anne looked at him with a vengeance. She did more than look. She sprang to her feet, her bright fancies fallen into cureless ruin. She flashed one indignant glance at Gilbert from eyes whose angry sparkle was swiftly quenched in equally angry tears. "'You mean, hateful boy!' she exclaimed passionately. "'How dare you!' And then, thwack! Anne had brought her slate down on Gilbert's head and cracked it, slate, not head, clear across. (laughs) Welcome to our podcast on Lucy Maud Montgomery. Welcome. Welcome. This is Heather. (laughs) This is Dana. And we're delighted to have you here today. Yes. And this is Yesterladies, we should maybe say. Yesterladies. Yay. So for those of you who have no idea at all who Lucy Maud Montgomery is, um, which is understandable, I suppose, if you're living in the Arctic, you know, I don't know. I feel like everybody should know who she is. You, you only get a pass if you live in the Arctic. <laughs> I don't know why I put Other, on the Arctic. Otherwise, you should know who she is. Yeah, you should know who she is. Um, so anyway, Lucy Mom Montgomery is a rather famous author from Canada mm-hmm. who uh, was born and raised and spent a lot of her life in Prince Edward Island, which is um, our easternmost province, right? It's the easternmost one of them yeah i thought it was the furthest east. no some of them go further oh, east, okay. but it's one of the maritimes well, it's, yes it's one of the maritime the provinces yeah. it's yeah. very far east yes. in canada <laughs> and uh she wrote the very famous children's book series um anne of green gables was mm-hmm. the first book and then she wrote there were what, like seven other mm-hmm. books in the series i think there were eight Anne books total yeah right, right. Yeah. so just in case you had no idea at all who she is now you do she's a very famous canadian author and Canadians are extremely proud of Lucy Mom Montgomery, or at least those of us who have any sense. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah. So, Heather, uh, if you could give us uh, some of the basic details of uh, her life. That'd absolutely. Be great. Absolutely. So, we'll run through her life. And uh, it starts back in the excellent year of 1874. So, Lucy Maud was born in Clifton, PEI. But if you go to PEI, as many tourists do, to visit significant Uh, sites of her life you won't find it on a map so it's now called new london so look for new london and uh there's a plaque on the house where she was born stating that that uh, that is the case so you can visit that um however she uh, was quite young when tragedy visited and her mother passed away um i believe from tuberculosis when she was 21 months old so she was quite young when she lost her mom and then i feel like her dad didn't handle this so well no (laughs) Uh, he could have done better yeah so uh dad (laughs) left her with her maternal grandparents so her mother's parents and uh moved to saskatchewan and remarried and then she, that was kind of it. I mean, I, I from what I read, she didn't have a bad relationship no, with him. And she, like, yeah. spent some time as a child mm-hmm. out with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she moved out for a year. So right. 1890 to 91, she lived with them. Um, but, yeah, it still seems a little sad that he would leave her behind and uh and just move away yeah so, yeah yeah don't Anne. do that dads no, if dads. that happens to you <laughs> just bring your bring your little daughter with you yeah yeah um however she uh was so she was being raised by her grandparents um and that was a happy home and she loved them and, and that was a good situation so you know that was good at least um and i did it, i did read something about that her uh her grandparents were a little stern mm. and stiff and that she kind of struggled with that and made reference to it in later life about mm-hmm. she wished they had been a little more demonstrative mm. and caring but mm, yeah, but you know yeah. yeah it was a it was a good home and she was 
you know, well brought up and well, ca- well cared for and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Stable. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if I were a father at that time, I might not want to bring my little daughter out to the sort of wild west or True. pioneer territory. Yeah. He so, might have thought it was a better idea to, to leave yeah. her in a more stable situation. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Perhaps. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> we can cut him some slack. <laughs> maybe we could yeah, maybe. understand his perspective. <laughs> but um, I, I feel like the fact that being an orphan is such a big theme in many oh, of her novels yeah. and, and particularly Anne of Green Gables, you can see where that comes from from, oh, yeah. from her own life. Because although she wasn't technically an orphan because she still had her father, he, he wouldn't have been in her life very yeah. much. So um, you can kind of see some overlap even right from the beginning. Um, and so she grew up with her grandparents, um, but there weren't any siblings and, you know, that was about it. It was just them. So like you said, it would have been a fairly lonely existence. Um, so she used books, nature, and her imagination for company. And so you can see her reliance on that. Um, you can see the necessity for that. And she started, um, writing when she was around nine. So she started writing poems, kept a journal. And when she was visiting her father in Saskatchewan, uh, she had her first poem published and it was called on cape la force and it was published in a pei newspaper so it's actually published at home while she was in saskatchewan yeah, which is kind of neat this, like what did you say she was eight uh well she was nine when she started writing but it was 1891 when she got published okay so, so how old would she have been 74 to 84 hmm, like 16 ish that's maybe? pretty impressive yeah that she yep. like not only that she has this poem published but that like i love that she sent it back <laughs> yeah. to a newspaper in pei mm-hmm. to be published yeah so she's continually um submitting yeah, uh, yeah even when she wasn't there i wonder if it was submitted before she left and Maybe, then accepted and published perhaps. while she was away yeah but that's yeah a possibility have to look into that <laughs> um and ever since or that really started um her string of publications so she was writing submitting and publishing the entire rest of her life so it was it was a big um consistent activity in her life um and when i visited her grandparents home in pei um i was delighted to learn that they had been um, the post office for many years in the community so all the community members would have been visiting on a regular basis to pick up their mail uh and so not only did this mean that she got all the local gossip first (laughs) (laughs) very important very important (laughs) yeah um but she also accredited in her journal she wrote about how she wouldn't have ended up a writer or wouldn't have had the courage to submit her manuscripts if the post office hadn't been in their house because she could send her manuscripts into publishers secretly and then Mm -hmm. no one would know and she said if the post office had been elsewhere and she had to walk there and submit it, everyone would know and they would mm-hmm. all be asking and, and it would just be too too exposed for her liking. <laughs> so she could secretly slip it in the mailbag. And she said she would do it after her grandparents would go to bed. She would oh, like so slip even it in her the grandparents, mailbag. she wouldn't uh, yep. share that with them. Yeah, it was a secret even wow. from them. And that made me think too of Jane Austen, how she would hide her mm, writing when her yes, family would come to the yes. door. and Hide so, it under other papers and yeah, things. Yeah. yeah, so I thought, oh, all these like secretive mm-hmm. uh, writers through history that yeah. we love. Um, so she, uh, was very well educated for the day, especially for a woman. Um, she, you know, she sort of went through the typical, um, like grade school and then, uh, around grade 11, she attended the Prince of Wales college. So this is 1893 to 94. Um, and she got her te- teacher's license at an age when most of us would be in grade 11. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And I think I read she, uh, you could do it either in one year or two years. Mm-hmm. So the one year program, it was like a condensed version. So much right. more intense and she yep. completed it in the one year. So yes. I think that shows, it gives a sense of how intelligent she was and how scholastic yes. she was much like and yes and she completed it with honors so yeah. she did a two-year program in one yeah. year and graduated with honors so she was she was really 
she would have been a bosom friend to yes, us. I think so, yes. I think both of us have a lot of affinity for, yes. <laughs> for Lucy Maud. Yes. Like um, intelligent and literary ladies. Yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so she taught at three different schools. Um, and she also kind of took a break there for a year. Well, not took a break, but took a break from teaching and went to Dalhousie and studied English literature for a year. Uh, and this was very rare for oh, a woman yeah. at the time. So the teacher's um, certificate would have been common, but to actually pursue any university courses um, would be quite rare. So yeah, it was huge for yeah, women. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and you can see that theme of education and higher education and going into teaching and ants as well. Mm-hmm. And it seems like she, she obviously was pulling a lot from her, oh, her own experiences uh-huh, to write yeah. about that with Anne. Yeah. Um, all right. So in 1898, her grandfather McNeil dies. And at this point, her grandmother would have had to leave the house because she wasn't able to care for it on her own. So Lucy moved home um, and she ended up living at home with her grandmother for 13 years. So I think, again, we see that reflected in when um, Matthew dies and mm-hmm, Marilla books, would have. Yeah. yeah. So Anne has to move home and take care of her. And it's an it's a very similar experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So she did uh, head to Halifax for nine months in 1902, and she was the editor of the Daily Echo for uh, a short period of time. I love that. Yes. She's so cool. Yeah, she is just into everything <laughs> yeah. that we're into and just such a well, gutsy and, woman. And, you know, a, yeah, very yeah. much ahead of her yeah. time and I'm sure had to deal with a lot of nonsense yes yeah <laughs> sexism the, and from yep. the outside world yep. and uh it's yeah as you say she's gutsy especially considering as we'll kind of get into a little bit later um you know she kind of had a, a difficult life in many ways and one of the difficulties in her life was what we now are pretty sure uh was a um undiagnosed you know depressed or manic depressed personality mm-hmm. and um so she struggled with depression all her life and mm-hmm. it, i think it makes it doubly impressive everything she achieved uh, given that this was a big part of her life that often kind of left her you know really struggling and kind of de- debilitated multiple times so it's kind of especially awesome that she yeah. overcame all of this and did so many amazing things yeah i like that a lot yeah and almost every source talks about how emotional she was and yeah. that things affected her deeply mm-hmm. and so she felt she really felt losses maybe more than other people would um and yeah so to be so sensitive and to still break so many barriers and and go out and do so many things in different arenas that were mostly male and be a newspaper editor and go to university and do all that with her temperament is like you say especially impressive Mm -hmm. she's just great (laughs) um all right so she's taking care of her grandmother for 13 years uh takes a break as an editor for a little while um and all the way through she's writing being published and she starts to get paid for her work which is really really great so she's starting to support herself with her writing and by 1903 she's making around 500 dollars a year which Which is very impressive for the day with (laughs) a very comfortable income Yeah, yeah absolutely so she's now supporting herself and this is great and she's like sort of a career woman at home um and she comes to write the her sort of her seminal work, Anne of Green Gables, in 1905 and uh, sends it out for publication and receives all rejections. Which is just yeah. crazy. We were talking yes. about this a little bit before we started recording that it does kind of seem like... I don't know, a lot of the classics that now everybody loves, like Harry mm-hmm. Potter, yes. right? J.K. Yep. Rowling exactly. sent that yep. to how many people and was just like rejected and rejected. <laughs> and, and so we, it just, it's kind of mind boggling. And then, and then I think about those poor, we're not so poor because they rejected them, but those editors who rejected those books and then they become these like insane bestsellers yes. huge worldwide yes. successes and these people are just kicking themselves <laughs> oh why didn't we accept <laughs> that manuscript when the time was ripe 
Yeah. So she experiences all these rejections, um, like so many other excellent authors do. <laughs> um, and depressed over this, understandably, she <laughs> yeah. puts the manuscript away in a hat box. So oh, I don't I never want to see this again. And a couple years go by and she ends up finding it again, rereads it, realizes how you know, she always knew it was great, but how great it is and says, I'm gonna submit it again. So she sends it out. And the next year, 1908, uh, the Page Company in Boston, Massachusetts accepts it for publication. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and history was changed. <laughs> Our lives will never be the same exactly. again. Exactly. No, yeah. really. Yeah. So, um, and very gratifyingly, it was an immediate bestseller. So it was hugely popular. And this was the start of her successful career as a novelist. So it really launched her into novels and the rest is history from there. Um, so a few years later, 1911, her grandmother dies. And this seems to be sort of her liberation from that household. And, you know, she'd been caring for her, from her, for her grandmother. Uh, she ends up marrying right after that to a gentleman. He's a reverend, Reverend mm-hmm. Ewan McDonald. Uh, and they had actually been secretly engaged since, uh, since 1906, which I love. Like, I know. I of like course that. she has a secret engagement, right? Because... Why does it have to be secret though? That was never, <laughs> like, who would object to the, the minister. The minister, yeah, the reverend. <laughs> Why was it secret? I don't know. I don't know. But it seems a little suspicious that as soon as her grandmother dies, they get married, right? Yeah, so, so maybe the grandmother didn't like him. Perhaps she had some objections, well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, they get married and they move to Leeside, Ontario. So where he um, is a Presbyterian minister. I know. Kind it of feels, breaks my heart. It does. It does. It's like removing her from her natural yeah, habitat. Yeah. Exactly. And she never yeah. lived there again. She no. went back for visits, but... Yeah. That was it. That was it. She yeah. lived the rest of her life in Ontario. And all of her books, except for one, were based in Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, it seems like that's where her heart was. And it's so sad that she, she never made it back. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, she made it back. She went back for visits. True, but true. She but never lived live there, there again. again this is, yeah, this is right. So uh, after marrying, she had three sons, um, but one of whom was born, uh, stillborn. So uh, she had two living sons. And... She, she had a fairly standard life after that, um, ran the household, helped her husband in the church where he was a minister, um, continued to write and kept her journals. Um, and if you've ever seen the collection of her journals, they're absolutely massive. Like epic. <laughs> she, epic, <Yeah>. like <laughs> huge volumes and like so many of them. So um, she was journaling all the time. And she also carried on a huge correspondence with family, friends and fans as well. So she would personally answer fan mail, which is that's just great. great. Yeah. I wish that I wish that she had still been alive when we were reading and as girls to have written to her and received a letter back would have just been amazing yeah and we would have we would have oh, written yes. to her yeah. <laughs> i wrote to jk rowling so <laughs> i would have written to ellen montgomery um and so uh they moved around a little bit in ontario uh, they moved to norval ontario and then toronto um and we talked about how odd it was to think about her in toronto <laughs> yeah you know, someone so from such a small province and such a well, and so I- identified with yes. PEI, yeah. it just seems odd to picture her anywhere else. Yeah, in Toronto, and, <laughs> yeah, and early Toronto in the early 1900s was a bustling mm-hmm. place, right? It, yeah, it was dirty and growing and very economic and to picture her there is is so bizarre um so she ended up dying there um on april 24th 1942 um and some of the family has talked about how um it may potentially have been a suicide Um, well that came out a few years ago that um like literally just a few years ago in like i don't know 2008 i think 2008 or 2009 up until then it had always been kind of given out that she died of heart failure but um the 
I think her granddaughter or her, yeah, her granddaughter. Yes, yeah. wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail in you know 2008, and basically came out and said. I mean, she, it sounded from what she said that it was just kind of a well-known thing in the family that, no, she really did. She committed suicide, in, in fact, and that it wasn't, it wasn't just a straightforward heart failure. And mm. um, the article I read, there was even reference to a note. That, mm, so she, she left a note. So that kind of sounds like it was fairly unequivocal that, you know, um, and, and the this family member put out there that uh, it was an overdose of, uh, of medication that she had taken. And um, again, obviously this is very much linked to her, her um, struggle with mental illness and depression. And um, it's, it's such a shame of course, as that always is um, that, uh, that this disease took her life in this way. Um, but I thought it was great. Uh, the reason that the granddaughter came out and decided to write this article yeah. just really so recently um she said it was because she wanted to address the uh the stigma of mm -hmm. mental illness and depression mm -hmm. and start to kind of you know help other people dealing with it and and spread awareness and understanding um of the fact that you know we should be getting rid of the stigma that mm -hmm. yes. you know tends yeah. to still be very pervasive in our society um about mental illness and particularly uh depression manic depression all of this. So I think it was a very um, worthy reason for kind of coming out with this fact all these years later. Um, and, and of course, for scholars and even just for, you know, us casual readers mm -hmm. of her works, it I think it does help to give a little more understanding of who she was and mm -hmm. why she wrote the things she did and maybe a little insight into her characters. Um in particular, uh, I read a very interesting piece uh, today by um, a woman named Ashley Cowger. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I don't <laughs> know. See. We'll just assume. Um, so, and the, the title of her piece is From Pretty Nearly Perfectly Happy to the Depths of Despair, Mania and Depression in L.M. LM Montgomery's Anne series. And uh, for those of you who don't recognize those quotes those are two kind of lines fairly well-known lines from the first Anne novel um and describes herself early on she's she's going through a you know a beautiful vista <laughs> on Prince Edward <laughs> Island and says that she's pretty nearly perfectly happy and then later on in the novel um she goes through a, a difficult episode and and claims to be in the depths of despair and so it's <laughs> I thought it was a very interesting title for this article that basically goes on to claim to kind of look at Anne through the lens of what we now understand to be Lucy Ma Montgomery's um, struggle with depression. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess this woman, she read a lot on um, different scholars who have written about Lucy Ma Montgomery and the consensus seems to be judging by her writings and, you know, other facts about her life. Um, they've kind of posthumously, um, given her the diagnosis of manic depression. Mm. So um, she, you can kind of see this too in, in her writing. She would go through intense right. periods of, you know, output. yes, creative yeah. and, and um, joyous expression. And she, she was, as you mentioned, that she's such a sensitive nature and she, like nature, she felt it deeply and she was very much attuned to anything beautiful. And so she would go through those periods and then she would have major depressive 
mm-hmm. periods um, where she was, as Anne would say, in the depths of despair. Mm-hmm. And so this uh, Ashley Cowger puts forward the idea that Anne, as has kind of been discussed, is um, in some ways fairly autobiographical um, of Montgomery. And we can kind of look at Anne's personality and see perhaps that Lucy Montgomery was projecting a version of herself and her own kind of manic and depressive episodes that was a little bit more positive and a little softened. Mm -hmm. So this author actually kind of goes through and and takes, you know, excerpts from the books and kind of, um, you know, gives a little bit of a diagnosis of Anne herself saying that she had a form of (laughs) manic depression that was perhaps a a subtler kind, although she makes the point that obviously you can't actually diagnose, um, you know, a fictional (laughs) fictional character character, and especially you can't really diagnose anybody without understanding, you know, the family history and like talking to them and like, you know, really, you know, going through that. So this is all of course very speculative, Mm -hmm. but I thought it was a really interesting perspective and, um, I'm, I, you know, in preparation for our podcast today, I started rereading the book and, and now kind of reading it with that eye, you can definitely see that, that, and when she's up, she's really up and she's just, you know, <laughs> like so euphoric, so euphoric, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And just, you know, very creative and imaginative and, mm-hmm. and, you know, her creative names and like, her, <laughs> her joy and her, her love for the world around yep. her. Yep. Um, and then when difficulties happen, she is extremely sensitive and, and really struggles perhaps a little bit more mm-hmm. than the people around her with some of the difficulties in her life. And, I thought that was interesting that this is kind of an, another projection of mm-hmm. of Montgomery onto her most well-known character. Absolutely. So I thought that I, was interesting. I feel like Anne tends to even out as she gets older. Yes. That, actually, and this author mentioned yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. By the time you get to Rainbow Valley and, and the books where Anne is older and it's mm-hmm. about her kids, mm-hmm. she seems very even-tempered. Yes. And it yeah. almost seems like maybe wishful thinking on Lucy Maud Montgomery's That's, part. Yeah. That, that would be the ideal outcome of someone with that exactly and that's kind of one of the things that both this ashley cowger and another article i read um they were making reference to the fact that Anne was in many ways kind of an idealized version of montgomery that she went through a lot of similar things um but things were just a little bit rosier for Anne in many ways and she her marriage with gilbert is is much happier unfortunately than um than Montgomery's was, or rather I should say it's unfortunate that Montgomery's <laughs> marriage was yes. unhappy. Um, Anne and Gilbert were very happy, as we well know. Of course. We're all very happy that they're happy. Yes, of <laughs> yes. course. Everybody's just happy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. The idea that Anne was kind of, you know, in Montgomery's eyes, maybe Anne was this version of her that was able to, you know, better deal with some of these difficulties and, and um, these depressions and uh, the circumstances of her life. And so I like that idea. That's very interesting that, and it, almost it seems like maybe Anne, you could say is, is, was therapy for yeah. Montgomery, yeah. you know, writing this, you know, writing out your own kind of struggles in this mm-hmm. way. And mm-hmm. um, very interesting, yeah. but yeah, absolutely. This author points out that the, these examples of Anne's kind of, you know, mania and depression <laughs> are much more pronounced in the first book. And then even by Anne of Avonlea, yeah. she's much calmer and she continues kind of to 
to and yes absolutely by the time you know she's a grown woman and she's married she's much more even yeah even yeah. tempered yeah so that's very interesting i think her swings are really what hooks you because they're oh, so yeah. humorous yes. right and you get yeah. pulled into her personality in that first book yes. and then yeah. and then you just love her and so you keep exactly. reading but uh, exactly. yeah it's, it's so enjoyable to watch her get into scrapes <laughs> into and is. out of scrapes exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> um yeah. Um, now, one of the other pieces that I read, I think I made my reference to it. If if I didn't, I'm going to do that now. Um, so I read another piece titled Jane of Green Gables. <laughs> which we love. <laughs> which is pretty great. Um, written by Miriam Rheingold Fuller. And in this article, I did not realize, but um, Ms. Rheingold Fuller points out that Montgomery was a big fan of Jane Austen because, of course, she was. Because, and I think this woman points out in the article that people who love Anne tend to then also love uh, Jane Austen's (laughs) heroines and works. And uh, we can attest to that. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So I really, really enjoyed this article, although I thought she was a little harsh on Emma. Mm. But that's just just me. That's another podcast. (laughs) I have have such a special feeling for Emma. Um, (laughs) I think people are too hard on her. They're just too hard on Emma. And that's, sorry, that is Emma from the book Emma by Jane Austen. For those of you we may have lost in my little hour. <laughs> sorry about that. This, sorry. Is, this is our Austen digression. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Austen digressions are, this is just going to be something that people will have to put up with in these podcasts. <laughs> this will be the first of many Austen digressions so. in yeah. our podcast series. <laughs> so, but it is related, right? Because yes, absolutely. <laughs> because so, of this article, if nothing else. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this article points out, and I was delighted to learn this, that that Montgomery was a big fan of Jane Austen and read and reread her novels. And, and we know for sure that she owned at least some of them. And it's likely that she owned probably all of them as as I do, and I'm sure you do. <laughs> collection. But you do. Yes. You own all six novels by <laughs> Jane Austen. That's just what you do when you love her. So um, this author, uh, Miriam Rheingold Fuller, was pointing out the connections between the Anne series and most of the the, the Austen novels, actually. I mean, she yeah. kind of drew the strongest connections to Pride and Prejudice okay. and uh, maybe to a lesser degree, Emma. Um, but uh, she kind of, you know, brought in facets. She's kind of positing that Anne was kind of in many ways an amalgam of mm. a lot of the Austen heroines from Elizabeth Bam- uh, Bennett to Emma to okay. some of the, the other heroines mary uh marianne from sense of sensibility okay. with her very passionate absolutely you know absolutely. beauty yes. loving yes. nature i think yep. that's absolutely we can see yes. Anne for sure and in, in that i think marianne you can claim that she's a little bit manic depressive herself <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> i sometimes don't have patience for marianne but that's all i'll say <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I love her, but she's a little trying sometimes. <laughs> Just shape up. <laughs> You're stuck together, Mary. Get your stuff together, yeah. Stop mooning over Willoughby. What are you doing? Like, that guy is an ass. Just move away. <laughs> anyway, good Lord. I'm sorry. <laughs> we can cut all this out. This <laughs> is edited. <laughs> so, anyway, kind of the biggest comparison that this author drew to the Austin heroines, as I said, was Pride and Prejudice. And she kind of talked about how Gilbert and Anne definitely mirror uh, Elizabeth and Darcy in a lot yes. of ways. Yeah. They were kind of 
frenemies, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Anne, like Elizabeth, kind of takes this immediate dislike to um, uh, the man in her life because he, um, I mean, you know, definitely on the part of both Darcy and Gilbert, they they slighted mm, um, yes. Elizabeth yep. and Anne, yep. and um, those ladies chose to hold that grudge for a long time (laughs) (laughs) and then you know the male uh partner kind of develops and comes to realize his feelings for the heroine but she's not having it Mm -hmm. and (laughs) he professes herself she turns him down and then later on they come to an understanding and so I thought that was very interesting and now I'm just delighted to reread all of Anne with that in mind and just be thinking (laughs) about Elizabeth and Darcy and she drew connections as well between um Emma and Mr. Knightley uh, which you can kind of okay. see as well. The kind of the, f- yeah. the friend next door who yes, turns true. out to be true. Uh, your love, the yeah. love of your life. Yep. And, um, you know, all of that, but very interesting. I thought I, like that. I really like I, that. I think that's wonderful. I know I do too. It's <laughs> great. It's really wonderful. Hooray for that. article! <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So another, uh, topic we wanted to bring up, and I think this is the last little bit that we'll, we'll discuss. Um, comes a little bit from from our experiences of visiting Green Gables. So I don't know if this was the case when you were there, Dana, but I visited two years ago and the place is is just full of Japanese tourists. (laughs) And (laughs) there's like whole motor coaches of enthusiastic, uh, hopefully kindred spirit Japanese tourists. (laughs) Uh, And and I, I... did not realize that this was a social phenomenon and I was confused. Um, and then came to realize that, um, Anne of Green Gables is exceedingly popular in Japan and, um, that the province of PEI, um, the premier was quoted as saying they expected 20,000 Japanese tourists in the year 2014 uh, to visit. That's crazy. It is crazy. I I mean, I just like, these people are coming so far around the world. To, to see visit Green Gables. Prince Edward Island yep. and see yep. Green Gables. Absolutely. So we were curious about what made it so popular in Japan. And so I did a little bit of research when we were prepping for this. Um, and they were talking about how um, during World War II, when Japan and the U.S. were at war, um, one of the first copies of Anne of Green Gables made it to Japan and uh, was given by a missionary to um, a Japanese woman who worked as a translator. And so she worked on this secretly because the U.S. were the enemy, so English books were not um, not allowed. And so she translated not it. Not Yes, yes. <laughs> it would not have been pleased to discover the little Anne of Green Gables in this woman's home. Uh, so she translated it. And then after um, the U.S. won and, and were controlling J- uh, Japan after World War II, um, only English books were allowed. Well, not only English books, but um, English books were encouraged um, by the U.S., and uh, so, and many families had lost their libraries to fires and many libraries had burned down. It's very sad. Um, it is very sad. Yeah. And um, traditional Japanese architecture was mostly wood. So you can see why a fire would be such a huge issue. So some families and, and many children, this was one of the only books that was available to them. So they read Anne of Green Gables and fell in love because who couldn't? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, and what I love is that the Japanese title in the translation is not Anne of Green Gables. Well, what it is, is it? Redheaded Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Which oh, that's amazing! Just wonderful, and so um, it should be. It should be carrots, carrots, <laughs> carrots. 
<laughs> it is not quite the same. Yeah. <laughs> and so the Japanese don't say Anne of Green Gables. They say redheaded Anne. Aww. <laughs> yeah. Which I think it's just charming. I love that. Yeah. And Anne would have hated that. Yes, she would. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. it's. I know this is true for you yeah. as it is for me, but Anne of Green Gables and those books were such a huge part of my mm. childhood. I was mm-hmm. a big reader as a kid. And of course I still am. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Anne just had a really special place for me. And I don't know, mm-hmm. it's something about being Canadian and a literary type yeah. Yeah. girl. Yeah. Um, and I remember just my mother's excitement. I don't know if it's the same for you, but like my mom was the one to introduce Anne to me and mm-hmm. she had adored Anne mm-hmm. and we read them together and then I read them and like I that copy that I read from at the beginning Heather was kind of laughing at me earlier because <laughs> it's my still my original copy from I don't know how I, how old I was when I first got my set of uh, the Anne books but it is it's dog-eared to say the <laughs> it least it's well loved it's well loved it is falling apart and that's because I read those books so much so mm. I had um, I had this winter coat that had these like square pockets that were like just the right, the right size, size. <laughs> for, for the Anne novels. So I would walk back and forth. I would go home for lunch every day. I would walk back and forth to school and um, I would read all the way there <laughs> and then I could slip the the book in my coat pocket it fit perfectly and so I think that contributed to why they're so dog-eared constantly be being pulled in and out of my uh, tight pocket but like I would I would really I would walk with my nose buried in those books yeah. and I read them over and over again and I would come mm-hmm. home at lunch and sit there eating and reading mm-hmm. and um, they just they're definitely some of the books that shaped who I am, mm. um, those and uh, Jane Austen later yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we recognized someone very like us mm-hmm. in the books yeah. and, and, you know, lively and mm-hmm. intelligent and spirited mm-hmm. and someone that we, I think all Anne fans long to be friends with Anne. Yes. That, that she, she just seems real. like the perfect best friend, yes. doesn't yeah. she? And, and, I hope Diana Barry realizes what she's got. <sighs> she just doesn't seem to deserve Anne's friendship. <laughs> Diana, Diana is wonderful. Diana she's is wonderful. very sweet. But, she, you know, I think every Anne, fe- if Anne fan feels that they would make a much better best friend for Anne Shirley. Like, if I lived next door to Anne Shirley, we would have had an epic friendship. <laughs> That's really how I feel about it. I think Absolutely. how you do, too. Yeah. <laughs> Not to diss a- Diana. Poor, no, Diana. poor Diana. She was a sweetheart. And then she goes and marries Fred Wright. Oh, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> so disappointing. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking about when I thought about how disappointing she was. Fred Wright. Come on. <laughs> Farmer. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, Anne. Absolutely. So, I think it's, you know, it's the, the best friend we all Wish that we had had. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Not that you are not a great best friend. Oh, thank you. But we didn't discover each other until university. No, it's so, true. You know, it's where true. were you when I was seven, I know, right? right? Yeah. And I'm sorry, you don't have red hair. It's just not the same. And neither do I. We but. have we have the maybe the raven locks that Anne admired. <laughs> there you go. That's what we'll call it. We'll call it that. <laughs> absolutely. Oh my goodness. Well, I guess we should wrap this up. I think we should just end by saying if you um, have never read the Anne series, Mm -hmm. um, 
or really any of Lucy Montgomery's books. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I, yep. I did, for some reason, I stuck with Anne, but I know you've read, yes. you know, the Emily of New Moon series yep. and Emily's some New of her Moon other books. And but... Pat of Silverbush. Yes, and... and I keep meaning to, maybe now it'll yeah. spur me to go Get and finally it. read those. Right. Um, I would particularly um, recommend Road to Avonlea. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of Road mm-hmm. to Avonlea um, books, and those are really great. And mm-hmm. then there's an accompanying TV show that goes with right. them. So if you and on become that, a fan. Exactly. And on that note, I think we should just mention mm-hmm. um I, I i know anybody who loved the books almost certainly <laughs> that means that you loved the miniseries that the cbc made in the 80s mm-hmm. with megan follows yes. playing Anne. yes um just such a beautiful adaptation it's still such a classic and i heard recently they are making another um miniseries yeah. and apparently um Martin Sheen is set to play Matthew, and I don't know how to feel about that, but <laughs> I'm trying to reserve judgment. Yes, we're, we're waiting to see how it turns out. Yeah, and, we'll see. Yeah, we're not sure. <laughs> Although I have to point out that the last movie or the last uh, segment quite of as, the original yeah. miniseries. Uh, well, they most, strayed so far from the books. Right. Most Anne fans do not approve of yeah. the last Although portion. I feel I need to go back and watch it. And the reason mm. I'm mentioning this in particular, again, if you haven't seen those, you know, look up a copy. Your local library is certain to have one. <laughs> but um, I think we should just end by saying, um, kind of paying tribute to Jonathan Crombie, who yes. was the young actor young at the time, who played uh, Gilbert Blythe in that mm. production, who unfortunately recently passed away um, far too young. I yeah. think he was, what, 48, 49, yeah. um, just a few weeks ago. And that was really, you know, that really, it, it hit me pretty hard because mm-hmm. um, that series and that miniseries and mm-hmm. he was just such a wonderful Gilbert. And yes. I think he was, yes. you know, Gilbert was my first literary crush. Yes, and then absolutely. <laughs> Jonathan Crombie certainly embodied him very well. And, you know, mm-hmm. I certainly had a, had a crush on Gilbert as Gilbert was portrayed in the film as well. <laughs> he just did a wonderful job. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, he really did. So we just want to okay. pass on our, our condolences yeah. um, mm-hmm. at that um, early loss. Mm-hmm. And maybe um, dedicate this podcast yes, to his dedicate memory. to the memory of Jonathan Crombie. There you go. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's all we have. That's all I have. Yeah. Okay. So until next time, um, this has been Dana. And Heather. And this has been Yester Ladies. And uh, feel free to uh, um, send us any comments or mm-hmm. questions. Uh, we'll provide our email address in the description um, along with this video and we'll also provide the uh, links to our sources for this video so or uh, podcast I should say yes. it's not a video, video. We're, not, we're, we're not taping this <laughs> not yet no <laughs> and thank you for listening yes yeah. absolutely until next time okay. goodbye bye, bye.